Hi everybody, Mike Wardrock from Encounter Church here, and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. What does it actually mean for our Sundays to invade people on our Mondays? Here at Encounter, uh, our heart is for people. We want to be known by how we love and welcome people into our community and how our community is welcoming and loving. That's what we say. How we really do it is an entire other thing. How do we ensure that our focus is not just built on conversations before and after church? How do we ensure our focus is not just within our existing friendship circles? And how do we ensure our friendships uh, are not just based on social media reactions or posts, but we actually speak with them face-to-face in person? Now, none, none of those things are necessarily bad, but tonight I want to talk to us about how we can do that better as we seek to build a loving, dynamic community that reflects the Kingdom of God. I know we are great at being real here at Encounter, but tonight I want to challenge us to build on that kingdom realness so we can expand our tent better and so that we can welcome more people into God's family. Does that sound good? Awesome. So uh, let's pray before we get started. Father God, uh, we come before you again tonight and we ask that you would speak to us and give us a revelation of what you're saying in Jesus' name and all the people said, Amen. Amen. The title of my message tonight is Strangers, Neighbours, The Table, and The Spread. I'll unpack what all that means as we continue, but let's get straight into Scripture. Luke 19, verses 1 to 7. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and he was unable due to the crowd because he was short in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree in order to see him because he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for today. I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. When all the people saw this, they all began to complain, saying, He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. You see, this story of when uh, Jesus called and welcomed Zacchaeus took place in the lead-up to his last week of ministry before he headed towards the cross. Uh, But it's a very similar story to when he called and welcomed Matthew at the beginning of his Galilean ministry, uh, Luke 5, verses 27 to 30. After that after Jesus had healed a paralyzed man in the verses before. He went out and looked at a tax collector named Levi, Levi who was also known as Matthew, sitting in the tax office. And he, Jesus, said to him, follow me. And he, Matthew, aka Levi, left everything behind and got up and began following him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a large crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling to his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? 
Jesus calling and welcoming Matthew, aka Levi, is also mentioned in uh, in Matthew. Well, in Luke five, is also mentioned in Matthew nine and Mark two. But can you see how the story of Jesus welcoming uh, Matthew, the tax collector, takes place in a very similar way, with a very similar response to that of Zacchaeus, the tax collector? In both stories, there was a sense of urgency from the tax collectors. Zacchaeus hurried and came down, and Matthew left everything behind then and there and began following him. My first point tonight is strangers, neighbours, people want to be known. One of the reasons why um, I believe non-Christians are either hostile or not interested in coming to church is because they think the church despises them. Tax collectors were some of the most despised people in society uh, in Jesus' time uh, because they bought these sort of tax franchises from the Roman government. You see, during that time, Israel was occupied and uh, oppressed by Rome, and to finance their empire, the Romans levied heavy taxes on all nations under their control. And, uh, and Matthew and Zacchaeus bought these franchises, and because they did, they were hated by their people. Uh, but they weren't just hated because uh, there was this perception that the, the funds that were taken were going towards Romans' uh, pagan government and secular um, pagan god worship, but it was because the taxes from the tax collectors received were often inflated for their own benefit. So if Rome's tax was 50%, they could have added an extra 20%, making the tax rate 70%. Uh, and because they were contracted by the Romans, they were able to enforce these huge tax rates to the point of the sword. Like when you make 10 cookies, uh, but you're only allowed to sell three and you have to give the others to the state. That's what was happening. Tax collectors were some of the most despised people in that society. But when Jesus saw, uh, saw uh, Zacchaeus in the tree and Matthew at his booth, he didn't see them as the worst uh, in society, and he didn't see them as betrayers to Israel. He stopped, he acknowledged them, he allowed them to be known, and was basically like, come on, let's go, I see you, you're not worthless to me. And both Matthew and Zacchaeus went with him right away. They were ready for someone to see them for the children of God they were and not the betrayers of society they became. Now, because we don't have tax collectors anymore, we can sometimes read this and kind of not feel anything. Uh, we do have ATO debt collectors, but they're not contracted by a foreign power. And even if they were, we could probably still have a drink with them in a pub or something and still consider them as just another government bureaucrat, right? Hey, nice to meet you. What do you do for a living? Oh, I work in public fiscal policy and deficit balancing. Cool. I'm just I'm going to go now. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding for any ATO workers here tonight. <laughs> uh, but for the Jewish people, it re they really were betrayers of society and it really wasn't a laughing matter. And if Jesus entered into uh, our world today, in society today, I bet that he would have gone up to the lowest in society in today's cultural moment. If in first century, uh, sorry, first century Jewish culture, uh, tax collectors and sinners, uh, sinners also known as people who were non-Torah observant, uh, were considered the lowest in society. How would we feel today if Jesus went up to those we consider in this cultural moment to be the, the worst in society? What if he dined with people we would rather write off and cancel? What if Jesus 
had dinner with a charged and convicted rapist? What if Jesus uh, dined or ate with a militant group extremist? What if Jesus had lunch with a white nationalist? When we consider who our world says today is the lowest in society, we can start to pick up on the magnitude of how the Jewish people were feeling. It was dangerous and disruptive, and the worst part was because Jesus um, shared a meal with them. It, it wasn't just because he acknowledged them when passing through, it's because he says in Luke 5, I must stay at your house. If Jesus said that today to one of the people we think, consider most evil, most vile, most cancelable, I reckon even we would sway to the same response. Why would he eat with them? Because even today, even in our progressive cities, most of us eat with friends, family members, people in the same social categories as us. But it was much, much worse for a, a, a Jewish person to have dinner with a non-Jewish person. Here's also why it was so bad. You see, 400 years before Jesus came, uh, Israel was in exile. The temple was destroyed, there was no more sacrificial system and there was no more priesthood as there was for over a thousand years prior. But the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, still had all these laws in there which God gave uh, Moses in Leviticus as, as a temporary solution to set them apart before the coming Messiah. So how did the Jewish people obey all of those laws with no temple, no sacrificial system and no priesthood? Well, the answer was they couldn't. So the rabbis in the lead up to Jesus coming kind of had to reinvent Judaism with a new framework. And here's what they did. It was sort of like how we all had to um, stay at home during COVID when, when we couldn't gather. Uh, for, the, for the Jews, your home was the new temple, your table was the new altar, the father of the household was the new priest and the meal was the new sacrifice. Then what happened was the Pharisees came along and just like us who were stuck at home during COVID, they just wanted to get back to the way things were. And their theory for getting back to the way things were was based on this idea of having less sinning um, or no sinning. And they thought that this could be achieved if the Jewish people kept the laws of the Torah for one day, there'll be this reset and everything would go back to normal. Uh, like, uh, like for us who were told to, to comply during COVID, if everyone sort of just basically stayed at home and did the right thing for them in that culture, the ideal Messiah would have come, in, in the Jewish view, the ideal Messiah would have come, uh, the, the kingdom of God would, would have been ushered in and um, Israel would have been set free. You can just imagine how it played out. Uh, good afternoon, I'm joined today by the Pharisaical Transition Committee as part of this major sin declaration. We want to flatten this curve. We're asking everyone to simply just do the right thing, comply with the laws of the Torah, and don't mix with anyone infected with unholiness. <laughs> That's pretty much what was going on. They wanted everyone to participate in their sin elimination strategy, and they thought that everything would go back to normal if they did. Because of this, um, practicing the laws of the Torah meant that no, no, no Gentile or non-Jewish person would ever come into your house and they will never sit at your table. Can you pick up on the weight of why this was so bad for them? Nobody could come if they were non-Torah observant. Nobody could come if they were disabled. Nobody could come if they had special needs. So if a rabbi in that culture, Jesus or any other Jewish person, had dinner with a non-Jewish person or a non-Torah observant person or a person considered the lowest in society like Matthew or Zacchaeus, it would have been atrocious. 
here's why I'm emphasizing all this. It's, it's because in order for us to love people, all people, and let the strangers and neighbors in our lives be known, we can't have any bias against anyone. We may say we don't have bias and love all people, but our default is sometimes, sometimes based on our own preferences due to our fallen humanity. This is where we keep coming back to God and asking him to help us see people the way Jesus sees them. Jesus loves people this way. Regardless of the things they've done, regardless of the franchises they bought into, regardless of their vile deeds. For Matthew and Zacchaeus, for Matthew and Zacchaeus, Jesus acknowledged them and said, "Come with me on this journey." Jesus wants to welcome all people and and recline with them and welcome them in, not to kick people out, but to welcome people in. So, how do we, through our Sundays invading our Mondays, allow people to be made known? Firstly, we pray. We ask God to help us see people the way He sees them. When I pray, I ask God to help me put on my God goggles. God, help me have a lens of seeing your grace at work in all people. And secondly, we acknowledge people made in the image of God. I, I pass a lot of people on my way to work in the city, people begging, people with all sorts of things going on. But no matter how hard it is or how uncomfortable it is or how they look, act or smell, I believe Jesus would tell us to acknowledge them anyway. Acknowledging could look like getting down on their level and asking if they, if, if they, um, how they are or if they need anything. If they need uh, money, I think our default should be to give it to them. Uh, if they need food, I think our default should also be yes. Because, because at the heart of the human existence, people want to be made known and by acknowledging the strangers and neighbours in our lives, we can live this out. Also, in our two passages tonight, both tax collectors opened their houses to Jesus, but the role of host was interchangeable. Zacchaeus received him joyfully in response to Jesus saying, I must stay at your house. Jesus basically invited himself over. And Levi gave a big reception for him. My second point tonight is the table. People want a meal with others. Our culture loves food. We have festivals and food trucks, restaurants keep popping up, and TV shows like MasterChef keep screening. We, we place an important emphasis uh, on having a meal with someone. It's, it, it's permeated in, in our Western culture. It's even stronger in Eastern culture because uh, food and meals are connected with harmony, commitment to family, solidarity and trust. In Judaism, as mentioned earlier, um, as the table became the new altar, it wasn't just sharing in fellowship uh, with each other, but it became in sharing in fellowship before God. I believe the most tangible demonstration of the saving love of God takes place in table fellowship. A word to describe this in the Greek is called philoxenos. It's a compound word where philo means love and xenos means uh, stranger or foreigner. Uh, in English, it's translated as hospitality. There's no fear or hate, but only love and welcome. Because Jesus is about turning strangers into neighbours and neighbours into family. You see, there's an inbuilt wiring in all of humanity for belonging. People want to have a meal and drink with others. I'll tell you how I know this. It's because while some of us say we like eating alone, we really don't. Table fellowship is an integral part of who we are. 
many of us hang around after church just waiting, uh, hoping that a group is going out for dinner, or many of us hang around just waiting for a BYO meal at someone's house just for community. We're doing that tonight. And if you're not hanging around after church, you probably have your own family dinner to go to. I love going out for dinner uh, with people. Um, I, if, you, if you've ever had dinner with me, you, you know I'm into uh, fancy restaurants, uh, fine dining and great service. Uh, but more than that, I love seeing people feel welcomed and valued. Uh, one side hustle I've been involved in over the past several years is the running of two networking groups. And they're not the business-type networking groups where sometimes there can be a perception it's just a bunch of, you know, men in suits gathering in a windowless hotel room. Uh, these groups are more about community fostering. And they're designed for people who come to Adelaide for the first time and don't know anyone. But they're also designed for people who are from Adelaide and just want to meet people from overseas for the sole purpose of friendship. Dozens of different nationalities in one space over food and drink. That's it. And uh, there was this one event I was running, and uh, all of them take place after work around 6pm. And I arrived at the venue, and, uh, and the manager came up to me and he said, Jeremy, uh, there's a German man in the courtyard where your event is being held tonight. Is he one of your attendees? I said, probably. We do have a few Germans on the list. He just must be early. And he said, no, 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 you don't understand. He's been waiting in the courtyard since 2pm. He's been there for four hours waiting for your event to start. There was another event I was running, and I always ask people where they're from, and there was this one attendee who came from the mid-north of the state, and it took him three hours to come uh, to Adelaide just for the event. Uh, was it because it was a good event? It could have been, but more so, it's likely because he knew he would be uh, accepted in a place where he would feel welcomed and valued. There was another um, event, and uh, there was this one guy, and he, and he told me uh, he was from South Africa, and... Um, I said, how long have you been in Adelaide for? And he told me, I've been here for four months. And I said, cool, have you connected with any other South Australians or South Africans during your time here? And he told me, I've been here four months. I've gone to work, because he had to come for his job. He said, I've gone to work, but I haven't connected with anyone. And when I see first-hand stories like that, it shows me that not just people are lonely, but that connection over people, over food and drink, is worth waiting for. There's an inbuilt wiring in all of humanity for belonging. And Jesus is about turning strangers into neighbours and neighbours into family. In fact, Jesus assumed we would throw parties. He says in Luke 14, verses 12 to 13, Whenever you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor wealthy neighbours. Otherwise, they may also invite you to a meal in return, and that will be your repayment. But whenever you give a banquet, invite people who are poor, who have disabilities, who are limping, and people who are blind. Most of the events that I run are full of people I don't know, all from different backgrounds or with different needs. Jesus calls us to serve those who cannot repay our kindness. He's more interested in, people, in us inviting people we don't know than people we do. The best hospitality is that which is given, not exchange. He commands us to reach out to those who are needy. Hospitality in God's eyes is not about climbing up the ladder, but it's downward spirituality. It's about going beyond the boundary lines of our friendships. It's about going beyond the boundary lines of, of race and politics and status. It's a new multi-ethnic family of God, a new way of life. So... 
Um, how do we, through our Sundays invading our Mondays, do table fellowship? We have a meal with others. It's that simple. It's about inviting someone to your house to join you at your table. Or if you don't have the space, or if your living situation isn't ideal, it's about finding a table elsewhere. The kingdom of God grows when we include others. And that's what it means to be the real family of God. In fact, it doesn't have to involve a whole new list of things to do. It simply just means looking at that extra chair at your table and involving someone else to join you. It could be a BYO meal um, if that's easier. We all need to eat. We were already planning to. It's about finding that table. Who could you share a meal with? Lastly, in our two passages tonight, it was clear that Jesus dined with sinners in places where sinners were. The people thought it was reprehensible. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. The Pharisees also thought it was reprehensible. Why does he eat with the tax collectors and sinners? My third point tonight is the spread. People need a delivery of hope. We live in a time what sociologists, as well as theologians, refer to as the post-Christian age. And it's based on this idea that Western society can be divided into three categories. There's pre-Christian, which kind of could be considered before Christ, but really it's before what's called Christianization, where entire, uh, entire societies um, converted to Christianity as their official and dominant religion. For pre-Christian, uh, think of historical paganism in places like England or Ireland before the gospel arrived. Uh, for common and prevailing uh, Christian culture as part of Christianization, think of European rulers who sought to Christianize their entire kingdom, kingdoms by putting crosses on every building. Or think of Middle America in the 1950s. But uh, a post-Christian era, in which is what we're living in now, uh, is, is a reaction against Christian culture. It's the West's rebellious teenage moment. It's the moment where the West sees the church as telling them what to do, and their response is basically, you're not my real mum. <laughs> While all of this is taking place, though, it doesn't mean that we're not still in Christian culture because uh, our, our systems, our governance still remains rooted in Christian values, whether acknowledged or not. Uh, but a post-Christian culture is, is secular society's backlash against Christian culture, which is uh, either hostile to the church or by being open to Christian opposition slash alternative worldviews. Here are my thoughts on this. In a, in a no longer Christianized society, Christians become uh, unsolicited and annoying. Uh, Christianity is thought of as illogical, uh, bigoted, unimportant and unsafe. Our workplaces educate us in cultural compliance. Our schools and universities dismiss Christian thought as harmful and there's a new cultural order. So how do we have conversations with our non-Christian uh, friends and family amid this, amid this cultural order? How do we have uh, conversations within this social pressure? Uh, well, some Christians uh, might just want to keep their heads down and stay quiet. Uh, some might take out bits of the gospel that uh, we don't like or consider are not up to date. 
But I believe that the, the right way, regardless of the social pressure, is that we keep the message of the gospel exactly the way it is and always has been. We don't compromise. The, the mission remains the same, but the method is different or better uh, reverse the same method the early church used after Jesus ascended into heaven. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, looking back at, at common and prevailing Christian culture where uh, Christianity was the norm, where it was mainstream, how was it that, the, um, that the, after Jesus ascended to heaven, the, the gospel spread from a small group of people after he went to heaven to over half of the Roman Empire in just three short centuries? How did this spread happen so fast, toppling paganism, counteracting Zeus worship, and enthroning Christ as the Son of God? How did it happen? It happened because the gospel was brought to others in their homes. Jesus, uh, Jesus went up to Matthew. He went into Zacchaeus' house. He, he didn't say, there's this great event in the synagogue happening. I'll meet you there and it'll be amazing. Rather, rather he, he, he brought the gospel conversations to them in their common settings. And when we think about this, we can also compare it to the way that uh, COVID spread in the same way. Yes, there were some mass gathering super spreader events uh, here in Australia, particularly when we think about our context. But last year, particularly in Western Sydney, the stats showed that COVID spread exponentially because people were gathering at each other's homes. For the gospel... Once it got into, uh, into people's homes through conversations at tables, at living rooms, there was no stopping its widespread outbreak. So how do we, through our Sundays invading our Mondays, spread a delivery of hope? We have gospel conversations outside the church. Mike started this series by telling, telling us that the way that we let our Sundays invade our Mondays, starts with us spending time with God, starting off our days getting filled with in God's word, praying, um, exploring it, applying it, and praying God speak to me. The way to have gospel conversations with others starts in the same way, but it begins, it, it starts with us getting filled, and as we step out, it's, it, it comes from a place of our own convictions. Gospel conversations aren't ignited by closet Christians. Uh, they're, not, they're not ignited by Christian ninjas hiding in the shadows. They start when someone asks us on a Monday, how was your weekend? And we say... I went to church. We're, doing a, we're going through a series on this, and these things have been happening. It, it, it's, it's not about what they believe or don't believe. It's about how we disclose our convictions of faith, permeated with love and amplified through our words. It starts when we tell others what God has been up to in our lives. And from there, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can have gospel conversations more easily, uh, over coffees, over dinners, uh, through people at, at our uh, tables at uni, through people at our desks uh, at work. So as we come to a close, as we let our Sundays invade our Mondays, who will you acknowledge? Who will you view with your God goggles on? No matter how they look, or act, who will you see made in the image of God? 
And who is someone you could share a meal with? Who could you have join you at your, uh, your table for table fellowship? Who could sit at that extra seat at your table, wherever that table is? And who could you have a gospel conversation with? Who is open enough to you that you could share uh, your convictions of faith? Who could that person be? Jesus is all about people. And the the, the early church grew because the, the early disciples were simply bold enough to share the gospel with others in their common settings. When Jesus ascended into heaven... He didn't leave the disciples' keys to a football-sized arena where they could run revival meetings. He, he didn't uh, uh, teach them um, how to set up a pyramid, pyramid marketing uh, scheme. Uh, he didn't leave them a brand strategy kit. The disciples met in each other's homes, igniting a gospel domino effect, fanned by the Holy Spirit, and that's the way the gospel spread uh, of Jesus spread from one home to another. Now, I'm not saying that we, we don't invite, pe- invite people to church. We should. What I'm saying is that in the early expansion of Christianity, the gospel spread more effectively in homes than in a church building. And do you know that they did this with no celebrity pastors, no Mark Driscoll, they had no political power, no private jets, no internet no printing press, under waves of persecution and with no legal protection. The gospel simply just spread from home to home, from one table to the next. So what does it actually mean for our Sundays to invade people on our Mondays? Acknowledge our strangers. Know our neighbours, invite others to our table, and let our words and actions be our spread. Thanks so much for listening. I pray that you are able to hear from God in a fresh way today. We would love to hear from our listeners. To connect with us or to financially support the work of Encounter, please jump on our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to jump onto iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast provider and give us a rating and review. Or share this message on your social media accounts and tag us at Encounter Adelaide. God bless. Have an amazing week.